We're going to be in Exodus chapter 4, at the end of Exodus chapter 4, verses 18 and following. Back in our series, My Dad Can Beat Up Your Dad, which chapter 4, verse 18 is where we're picking up today. Um, and so let's start with what we've done the last couple of times, which I think is always helpful, and that is just reviewing where we've come from. So in chapter 1, uh, we saw that God was faithful to his covenant to his people to do what to them? What, was this? what, did, it, what did he promise he would do for his people? Okay, does he bring him out of Egypt in chapter 1? Not yet, but he will be faithful to that one, right? But thank you for participating. I always appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, remember his promise that started way back in the Garden of Eden that he would cause them to be fruitful and multiply, to fruitful and multiply, right? And so in, throughout Exodus chapter 1, the people just keep multiplying like rabbits, right? There's just lots and lots and lots of Israelites, okay? And what's crazy about it is the Egyptian pharaoh, the king of Egypt, um, is oppressing them. He's doing things that, you know, keep them down, and he, he can't. They just keep multiplying in the midst of that. Chapter 2, um, I heard an analogy which I thought was helpful, which is kind of when you're in a play, there's a difference between backstage and front stage, right? Or is that what you call it, front stage or the stage? On stage. Is that what you said? Upstage. Upstage. Okay. All right. I, I have no idea. So I'm upstage, all right? So backstage, things can be like crazy. People are running around, getting costumes, you know, it's like chaos. There's things flying everywhere. But out in front of that curtain, it looks calm, peaceful, right? There's nothing happening in between the play. And so what we see happening in chapter 2 is nothing seems to be happening on the stage. Okay, they're still in slavery. Lots of bad things are happening. But backstage, what's happening? God's raising up Moses, Okay, and he's raising up a deliverer to come and deliver his people. And we, and we see at the end of chapter 2 that God sees them, he hears them, he remembers them. And then in chapter 3, we add that God has come down. God has come down to do something. So God is uh, in the burning bush, and he's come down, and he, he, he's going to send Moses, of all people, to come and deliver them. And so Moses and God have this really uh, heartwarming conversation where God says to Moses, Moses, I want you to go and deliver my people. And I'm going to be with you. And Moses says, oh, who am I? Why are you sending me? All right? And, <laughs> and, uh, and God says, I will be with you. That's his answer. I'm going to be with you, which, which kind of means it doesn't matter who you are, Moses. If you've got God with you, that's all that matters. And so Moses says, well, who are you? And he says, I am who I am. All right? Tell them that I am has sent you. And then Moses says, but they won't listen to me. And God says, I'll give you signs. Give you the whole staff turning into the snake thing, the hand of leprosy thing, the water into blood thing. Give you signs. They'll listen to you. And he says, but my mouth doesn't work very good. I can't speak very well. And God says, all right, Moses, who made your mouth? I did. I made your mouth. I'll teach you what you have to say. And then Moses says, please send someone else. <laughs> right? That's the conversation. And it says that God's anger is kindled against Moses, and you can understand why. All right? And God says, listen, I'm going to give you Aaron, 
Aaron will be your mouth. Now pick up your staff and get out of here, is basically what God says. And that's where we pick up in our verse, okay? So the conversation has just ended in verse 17. He says, take in your hand the staff uh, with which you shall do the signs. And we talked about how God's staff is like a symbol of God's presence with Moses and God's power, okay? So God's power and presence is with Moses. Now, before we get into our passage, um, I want to read you an illustration out of this book, okay? So this book is called When People Are Big and God is Small. And this is a topic that I've kind of brought up in the last couple of messages, that, that Moses has a problem. He sees God as being too small and people are too big. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But just to kind of bring it to our level, let me read this illustration, all right? Um, he's talking about himself, and he talks about uh, how life is controlled by other people. Your life is controlled by other people. And he says, my personal awakening to this problem came when I was a high school senior. I'd always been shy and self-conscious, controlled by what my peers thought or might have thought, but I never considered it seriously until the day of the awards assembly. I was up for an award, and I was scared to death I would get it. The auditorium was bulging with over 2,000 high school juniors and seniors. From the back where I liked to sit, it seemed like a good mile or two up to the platform, and all I could think of was what my classmates would think of me while I walked to the front. Would I walk funny? Would I trip going up the stairs? Would one person, I prayed it wouldn't be a girl I liked, think I was a jerk? What about those who were also nominated and who thought they were deserving? Would they think of me if I, what would they think of me if I won instead of them? What would I ever say for a brief acceptance speech? God, please don't let me get this award, I prayed. After a number of lesser awards were announced, the vice principal went to the podium to introduce the winner. He began with a short, somewhat cryptic, biographical sketch. It didn't sound exactly like me, but it was generic enough to fit. I was starting to sweat, but I sat motionless for fear that someone would think I was getting interested. Finally, the announcement came, and the winner of this year's award is Rick Wilson. That's not his name, just so you know. <laughs> Rick Wilson? I couldn't believe it. Of all people, no one even thought he was a candidate. You can imagine my reaction. Relief? No way. I felt like a total failure. Now what would people think of me? They knew I was up for the award and someone else was chosen. What a loser I was. Immediately, my mind was beginning uh, spinning out justifications. If I'd worked it all this year, I would have won. I certainly had the potential. I just didn't want to win. I'm a late bloomer. When I get to college, I'll show them. I was ashamed to go back to class. Pitiful, isn't it? Now, did you see what happened? Right before the award was announced, He's so worried about getting the award. Like, what are people going to think of me as I go up on stage? And then he doesn't get the award. And he's so afraid of what people are going to think of me that I didn't get the award. Right? So the problem was not the award. The problem was his fear of what people thought of him, no matter what the circumstances were, right? So briefly, with the person next to you, I just want you to discuss, can you relate to that illustration at all? And if so, where do you see your life being controlled by other people and by what other people think of you. Okay, can you relate to that scenario at all? Chit chat. Just two minutes. I don't hear any chit chat in the front row. 
So raise your hand if you can relate to that illustration. You can relate to it at least, okay, on some level. All right, good. Um, any brave souls want to say how you can relate to it? At what level does it hit you? Uh, I have to say it's kind of odd, but when I'm sometimes, when I'm like with my parents' friends, it's kind of weird, and I'm like the youngest there, and the rest are like little kids. Mm -hmm. I'm still old enough to participate in the conversation, and I'm still young enough to participate with the little kids. But when I'm just with the grown-ups, there's always this thing of like, you know, what should, should I say something because I'm old enough, or should I not say something? And then since they're just older than you, you just feel like, oh, I'm really immature. Sure. I shouldn't be in this conversation. And then when you leave, you're like, well, that was really immature of me not to be in that conversation. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, good, good illustration. When I was your guys' age, I mean, like, what did I care most about? I mean, there's a lot of different things, but I was one of those guys who cared. I think I've said this before, but cared about my hair a lot, okay? And I obviously have grown out of that. Um, <laughs> literally, literally, last night, my daughter says, Dad, why do you always, like, get worried when we mess up your hair? <laughs> like, oh, do I do that? <laughs> like... She's like, why do you think it's such a big deal? I'm like, it's not. It's not a big deal, honey. You can mess up my hair. <laughs> wow. High school was not that long ago, apparently. But don't you dare touch my hair. <laughs> I am doing multiple things on stage today. Just leave the hair alone, okay? All right. Well, let's look at verse 18 of our passage here. We're in chapter 4, verse 18. And this is a really kind of, some people feel like it's a disjointed passage, but I think we'll find some unity of thought as we work our way through it. So verse 18, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. So we'll stop there. Just a quick overview. Moses says to Jethro, I'm going back to Egypt. Jethro, his father-in-law, does one of the hardest things there is to do as a parent. And I want you guys to hear this because you're on the other side of this. You're not a parent. You're a kid. Um, not a kid. You're not, you're not kids. You are young adults. As young adults, one of the hardest things for a parent to do is to send their child away. 
Okay, just keep in mind, for the last 18 years, they've done everything they can to avoid that, right? Their, their whole job has been to not send you away, even in the times when they wanted to, all right? They kept you, and they raised you, and they loved you, and, and it's incredibly hard, and we see a really great example here in Jethro, who simply says to his son-in-law, his daughter, and probably the hardest part, his two grandsons, he says, go in peace, right? You can go. Well, then God tells Moses that seeking uh, those who want to kill him are dead. Moses takes his family and the staff with him. Now, what I want us to focus on is what Moses says at the beginning of this passage, the beginning of this verse, right? So, again, we're going to do a little partner discussion here. I want you to read verse 18 again. Okay, so we'll we'll read it together here. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law. So, went back, meaning Moses just finished talking to God. God and Moses talked for a lot of verses. They had a long conversation. And here's Moses' summary of the conversation. Let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. So I want you to discuss this. Did Moses do a good job of reporting to Jethro what God had told him? And what might cause Moses to say this to Jethro rather than what God really told him? Okay, so with your partner... Those two questions, just discuss that for a minute. All right, so did Moses do a good job of reporting to Jethro what God had said? Okay, not really. So, so was it ever in question whether the Israelites were still alive? Is there any question as to are the Israelites alive back in Egypt? Not really. You know, God doesn't say anything about that. Granted, yeah, Moses has been gone for 40 years, so he might kind of be wondering. It's been a long time since I've been there. Um, but God doesn't say anything about that. I mean, everything God has said implies they're alive, they're there, there's lots of them, I want you to go save them. Right? That's what God is saying. So Moses says, let me go back to my brothers and see if they're still alive. What might cause Moses to say it this way to Jethro? 
Okay, so he might be kind of, yeah, tempering it because Jethro doesn't believe in the same God that Moses does, right? Okay, I would say to that, who cares if Jethro believes in the God Moses does? This God just showed up in a burning bush and gave a direct command to Moses. So it would, it would be a very interesting like sensitivity that Moses had, like, oh, I don't want to offend you by telling you about this God who just met me in the wilderness. So I would venture a guess that that's a good, that's a good guess, but I would say I'd be surprised. What do you think? He would, well, if he told Jethro what God actually told him, Jethro would probably be afraid that him, his daughter, or his grandkids would just get be killed by Pharaoh. All right. Um, because of what Moses is going to do, like try to go deliver them. All right, so maybe there's some fear in there, right? Some fear of Jethro not letting him go. But let's ask this. Does Moses seem like he's really itching to go? He doesn't really seem like he's itching to go in the first place. So maybe that'd be a good thing. Like, oh, God, Jethro said I can't. You said honor father and mother, father-in-law. Like, great, don't have to go. So there's a thought there. Yeah? Right. I know I have to do it, but I don't really want to. Yeah, so there, there's some, I think that that's getting closer to the right path is this idea that maybe there's some denial going on in Moses' heart. That here Moses is, you know, he knows everything God told him, and he's either in denial of whether or not he could do it, or whether or not God can do it, right? That's a big thing to say, I'm going to go to the most powerful man in the country and free all of his slaves. That's... <laughs> Can I go? You know, that takes a lot of faith to say that, doesn't it? Noel, thought? Well, also, if someone walked in and said that God came to him and burned another, that would just sound really crazy. Yeah. And he'd be like, go to the hospital. <laughs> so, um, just maybe so that he doesn't sound like an idiot and has to stay because that just sounds crazy. Totally right. Like, I don't want to sound like an idiot. Okay? That's another good reason. Yeah? I feel like Jethro almost kind of knows what's going on because mm-hmm. he's so quick to let actually go. Yeah. And what we'll see in Exodus is Jethro actually is like a really admirable character throughout Exodus. That he does the right thing almost every time we see him, as, as far as I can remember. Um, so Jethro, I think, I think you're on the right page there, that Jethro kind of knows what's going on. But let's go ahead and talk for a minute. I think what, the way that I would put it is I think that um, he's struggling with the sin of unbelief. I think Moses is struggling with a sin of unbelief. Okay, so what is unbelief? Well, unbelief is just choosing to not believe that God's promises are true. And we see that, I mean, earlier in Moses' uh, conversation with God, God says to Moses, I promise that I will bring you up out of the afflictions of Egypt, the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, the land flowing with milk and honey, and he says, go and tell this to the leaders in uh, Israel. I promise that I'll do this, and they will listen to your voice. So God has promised that if Moses goes and tells them that this is who God is, what he's going to do, they will listen to Moses. And what's Moses' next word in chapter 4? He says, but they will not believe me or listen to my voice. So Moses is choosing to not believe what God has promised is going to happen. So Moses is wrestling with this unbelief, this choice to not believe in 
God's promises. And John Piper, he argues that all sin is rooted in unbelief. All sin comes out of us not genuinely believing what God promises he will do. So let's, I mean, just think of an example here. Pride. Okay, we all wrestle with pride. And yet God says that he will tear down the proud, but he will lift up the humble. That's what God says about pride and humility. And yet we still wrestle with pride. And so when we wrestle with pride, what we're really wrestling with is not believing that God really will tear down the proud and really will lift up the humble. Okay, so there's unbelief there. Or what about worrying? When we wrestle with worrying and anxiety, okay, we wake up, we worry about what people are going to think of us at school, what we're going to wear, how our hair looks, whatever it is. Jesus specifically says, do not worry, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. So when we worry, it's showing that we don't really believe Jesus. We don't really believe what he says here. Otherwise, it would change the way we go about our days. Or what about fear? Okay, at the beginning we talked about the fear of what other people think of you, the fear of man. Jesus takes it a step further and he talks about the fear of people who are going to kill you for following him. And here's what Jesus says. Don't fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus says, don't be afraid of people who can kill you for being a Christian. Don't be afraid of persecution. Because I am going to fight for you and I'm going to be an advocate for you in heaven. And so when we're afraid of persecution, it just shows we don't really believe Jesus. We don't really believe in his promise. And so for Moses, in his mind, um, he has the same problem that we see in this book, that people are big and his God is small. Right? So for Moses, the people that are big are Pharaoh and the Israelites, right? Like, I'm afraid of Pharaoh. He's not going to let them go. And I'm afraid of the Israelites, my own people, because they're not going to listen to me. And yet God has promised that they are going to listen and that he's going to defeat Pharaoh. And yet Moses is still afraid, which just means that for Moses, the people in his mind, those people are bigger than his little puny God. Because his little puny God doesn't really mean a whole lot when he says something and when he promises something. Um, This affects us as well, obviously. Um, We worry at school about what people um, are going to think of us, um, but we don't worry about what God thinks of us. We uh, need other people to say, you're cool, I like your hair, whatever it is, but what if we really believe that God said to us, I accept you, Um, on behalf of who Christ is and what he's done for you, I'm pleased with you. If we really believe that God accepted us, will we need the acceptance of all the people at our school? Um, We're a lot like Moses. We worry, we fear, we get proud, all because we value what people think of us and can do to us far more than what God thinks of us and promises to do for us. So just kind of getting back to the introduction that, yeah, we wrestle with this, don't we? Like, we wrestle with people being big and God being small. Well, let's look at the next uh, passage here, verse 21. I'm going to call it the gift of adoption. Okay? And here we're talking about adoption like parents adopting kids. Okay? 
So the gift of adoption. It says in verse 21, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. I want to point out this is the first time in the Bible where the people of Israel are called God's firstborn son or God's children. This is the first time that Israel is known as God's own children and that God reveals himself as their father. So I have another discussion question for you. Um, As we talk about how some people are bigger in your eyes than others, where would your father fall into this discussion? Hey, as your father tells you what to do or the things your dad does, is he big in your eyes or is he small and why? So talk with someone next to you just for a minute here. So what do you guys think? Is your dad, on the scale of people in your life who are bigger and smaller, where does your dad fall, bigger or smaller? Bigger, right? And so the question is, why? Why is your dad kind of bigger, not physically, but like in your mind, when your dad says something that's bigger than if, you know, someone else says something, why is that? He's got control of the bank account. (laughs) Yeah. He's got control of the bank account and the car keys and the whatever else you want. Yeah? Okay. He is in charge of you, right? He's the authority God set over you. Excellent answer. What else? Yeah. Well, for me, I just feel like I, there was like a big thing of authority set when I was really little. Mm-hmm. And like, I am the superior over you. And also, it's just, I always end up like looking up to him as someone like I want to be when I grow up because my parents keep saying like, dude, we're not perfect. We've done wrong things. I'm like, yeah, but it doesn't seem like it because you're always doing right stuff as an adult. So it just so that for me probably is just like really big because I always feel like they always know how to make the right decisions whenever the time comes and as much as they're telling me like we can't really do that, that's what it really seems like. Uh-huh. So. Awesome. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah. I'd say that um, just like looking up to my dad like more on the spiritual side, not physically, but spiritual side of it, because um, just seeing how he leads is like because you know it's hard to find people who are good leaders and especially for dads who lead the household. Right. Yeah? Good. What about how much your dad loves you? Does that have an impact on how you view him? Okay. Does your dad love you more than your PE teacher loves you? My dad is my PE teacher. (laughs) (laughs) 
right? Unique case there. Uh, mental paradox, we'll figure out later. <laughs> yeah. So how much your dad loves you and is close to you, like the closeness of your father to you makes his words more meaningful, more impactful, bigger to you, right? What he does matters more. So if your dad were to walk out the door and never come back, that would impact you more than if your dog walked out the door and never came back. Granted, I know some of you really love your dogs, and that'd be sad to lose your dog. But I can tell you that when you grow up and you get married, you're not going to be thinking, I just wish Fluffy was here at my wedding. But if your dad was gone, yeah, I wish dad was here. That's huge. So I just want to point out that in, in this conversation of when people are big and God is small, something that God does for us to help us see how big he should be in our life is he says, you're my children and I am your father. Which is a lot bigger than saying, I'm the guy who created everything and just kind of set it in motion and sent it off into the ocean. And, you know, God's out there. He's a, he's a universal force field out there. We don't talk to him. We don't know his name. Like, you know, we talked about Hinduism this last Wednesday. That's not a very personal God. But when God comes in and he says, I'm your father, I've adopted you as my children. And then when he takes it a step further and he says, and anyone who wants to harm you, I'm coming after him. Title of the series is My Dad Can Beat Up Your Dad. And that's what God just said in these verses. He just said, if you don't let Israel, my firstborn son, go, I'm going to kill your firstborn son. Can you imagine if you had a bully at school who's just bothering you like crazy, and your dad said, give him this note, and you open the note, and it says, if you don't leave my kid alone, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> my dad said to give this to you. <laughs> Good luck. Right? And what does that do for your view of God? You're like, thanks, dad. That's... Yeah, I mean, maybe tone it back a little bit, but thank you. I appreciate it. Um, and so that's what God does for us. He shows you that he is our father, that he's personal, that he loves us, that he's going to fight for us. Um, and when he reveals himself in that way, well, he gets a little bit bigger, doesn't he? He gets a little bit bigger in our minds. Well, we've got to move quickly here, but um, the next point is, is a really kind of one we should go through quickly. I'm just calling it, are you in or are you out? This is probably one of the most confusing and debated passages in all the Bible. So let's go ahead and read it. Exodus 4, verse 24 now. Um, God has revealed himself, and now it says, Moses is on his way. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Ah, what? Moses? You just The guy you just said you wanted to send and do all the stuff, you're going to kill him. Okay. Uh, then Zipporah, that's his wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin um, and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then. So God, you know, he let him alone. God let Moses alone is what we think it means. It was then that she said a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Uh, what's happening here? Okay, God shows up. He's going to kill Moses. Is that what, I mean, that's what we think because there's a lot of words here that are hard to understand because it just says the Lord was, met him and sought to put him to death. So is he talking about Moses or is he talking about Moses' son? Who does he want to kill? We don't know. All right, probably Moses though. Um, and then Zipporah, 
uh, it says she took a flint and cut off her son's foot. So she circumcises her son. So for some reason, her son hasn't been circumcised at this point. Um, and she takes the skin and she touches Moses with it. Okay? And actually, the word feet could mean a couple of different things. I'm not even going to get into it. So where did she touch Moses with it? I don't know. Um, and then she says, you're a bridegroom of blood to me. And what the heck does that mean? I don't know. Um, and, and when she says it, is she saying it out of love? Like, this is like a second wedding ceremony that we're having sort of here. Or is she saying it out of anger? Like, darn you, Moses, bridegroom of blood to me. We don't know that either. Okay? Just all sorts of things going on here. But what I think we do know is this. This all happens right after verse 23. And verse 23 says, I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So what I think is happening here is God is showing that there's a line that divides people. Okay? There's a line that divides people. And there is God's people on one side, and there's not God's people on the other side. And God is saying, my people is who? My people is Israel. And not my people is Egypt, or the people who are oppressing Israel. Okay? And what is the sign that God gave Abraham to show who was in his family? Circumcision, okay? So the sign... Some of you might have the question, like, well, if I'm circumcised, that just like automatically make me a Christian. No. It's always been faith that makes you part of God's family. Believing in God. That's just, Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. So believing makes you part of the family. The sign that you believe is that you're circumcised. But what has Moses not done? He didn't circumcise his son. So we got Moses' son over here. And here Moses is supposed to go and deliver the people of Israel, be part of this people, and his own kid is in this side. And so God shows up angry with Moses because Moses hasn't even fulfilled his covenant to the people of Israel. And Zipporah is another woman who falls into this line of great women throughout the book of Exodus. Remember the Hebrew, the midwives who wouldn't kill the boys? And then we've got... Um, the mother of Moses who saves Moses and the sister of Moses who follows Moses down the river and then the Egyptian princess who rescues Moses and now Zipporah, Moses' wife, saves Moses because I think God wants to kill Moses, not his son. And she circumcises her son, transferring her son over the line and into the people of God. Okay? So I think that's kind of what's happening here. And I think the question that it raises for us is this question. Are you in or are you out, Moses? Are you going to be identifying with the people of God that I have come to save? And it's the exact same question that we should ask ourselves. One of the first steps in choosing if God's going to be big in your life is choosing if you're in or you're out. Are you on God's side or are you not? Are you choosing to be part of his family or are you not? Moses kept God at arm's length. He called himself a Hebrew. He wanted to fight for the Hebrews. But at the end of the day, when he had children, he didn't even give the covenant sign of their membership to the people of Israel when they were born. So he's keeping God at arm's length, and we can do the same thing. Did you know that there's a verse in the Bible that says, we have a new sign to show we're part of the people of God? 
And that new sign that replaces circumcision is baptism. Baptism is the sign that God has given us to show, are we in or are we out? All right, and so it's just another encouragement for us if we say we're in. Like Moses, I'm sure Moses still identifies as a Hebrew. Have you gone through with the sign to say, no, I'm not just going to say I'm a Christian, I'm going to show it, I'm in. And come and stand before the church and say, I'm in. Jesus Christ died for my sins. I've chosen to put my faith in him and I want to be baptized today simply to show that I am in with God's people, that Jesus has done this for me and I'm choosing to be in. There's far too many of us here who say we're Christians and haven't done that. I just want to encourage you to consider that again. The last point, God is big. Let's read the last verses here. Exodus 4, 27. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And what happened? And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Well, what did God say? God promised that if Moses was to tell them all these things, that they would do what? They'd believe him. And what did Moses say? They're not going to believe me. And what happened? They believed. So the point is, it doesn't matter if God is big or small in your life. The reality is, God's big. Because what God says was going to happen, it happened. The choice is whether or not you see him as big or as small. And so we have to ask, how do we get there? How do we get eyes that see God for who he really is? For how big he really is? And it all begins with us actually choosing to believe in God's promises, right? To believe that God is who he says he is, we must believe his promises, which means we have to know his promises. We have to know this God. We have to seek him. We have to search him out. And his promises are contained in his word. So we have to be people who are in God's word, seeking out, who are you, God? And then when he shows us who he is, we believe it. And then we also must believe that God is not just the God who keeps his promises, but he is our father. That God is our father. And, and in John it says, see what kind of love the father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. That was spoken to the church, not to the Israelites, to the church, to us today. So we are adopted brothers and sisters and children of God, that God is our Father. He's revealed himself as our Father. So we have to believe God's promises. We have to come to know God as our personal, loving Father. And as we dig into those two things, God will get bigger. And people, what people think and what they want from us, well, it'll get smaller. And that's a wonderful thing to experience down through the years. And I hope that you guys do get to experience that. To go from as a, as a high schooler and a middle schooler who wakes up and just, what are people going to think of me? What's it gonna, what am I going to look like? What am I going to wear? What are they, where am I going to go to college? With? And then for, as the years go on, to have someone say something that used to just put you into conniptions of like, oh, they don't they think I'm stupid. They think I'm wrong. 
And then to years later see, you know what, they just said the exact same thing. And that would have just totally wrecked me a couple years ago. And it doesn't bother me anymore. Because my security is more in who God is and less who people are. They're getting smaller. God is getting bigger. So I hope that that happens for you guys in the years to come. Well, I want to connect it to the cross really quick. God's loving adoption of Israel as his children included God's killing of the firstborn sons of Egypt in order to save Israel out of their slavery. But God's loving adoption as us, as the children, his children, required him to kill his own firstborn son. So he killed the Egyptian sons to adopt the Israelites. He killed his own son, his own firstborn son, Jesus Christ, in order to save us out of our slavery to sin. That's the cost that uh, had to be paid for us to be children of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for the power of this word, and we ask that you would knit it into our hearts. And we pray, Lord, that you would teach us to trust in your promises, to know your promises, to believe your promises, to fight unbelief with faith and belief and choosing to say, I trust who God is, um, who he says he is. And we thank you that you've revealed yourself as Father so that we can know that the promises aren't just cruel, cold commandments that we must keep, but they are loving rebukes and loving exhortations and loving instruction from a God who is our Father who sees us and adopts us as his children and wants us to follow him. Help uh, your view to become, uh, our view of you to become bigger and our view of others to become smaller. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank <laughs> you.